cash bail does not help public safety. Cash bail just means that wealthy people who can pay for their freedom go home and people who can't afford their bail amounts stay in jail. Welcome back to A Steep Road to Freedom, the ACLU of Ohio's limited series podcast devoted to demystifying bail and pretrial reform. This episode, we'll define the players, outlining the role of judges, prosecutors, and police, giving special attention to the outsized role of the commercial bail industry in preserving the status quo. So as you remember last episode, we talked about how the system of cash bail fuels the crisis of mass incarceration. Roughly half a million people nationally languish in jail because they can't afford to pay their bail. Nearly 70% of the national jail population is awaiting trial as we speak. We define terms like bail, pre-trial detention, and walked you through the process of a typical arrest. And in Ohio, the inability to pay cash bail is the leading cause of mass incarceration. We learned why this movement could mark the end of the prison industrial complex, why bail reform represents large-scale systemic change, not superficial fixes. This episode, we're going to discuss the crucial stakeholders, like police, judges, prosecutors, and as we mentioned before, the bail industry. We're also sitting down with Daniel Dew, legal fellow at the Buckeye Institute, and our own policy counsel here at the ACLU of Ohio, Claire Chevrier. We'll also be answering questions like, why are conservatives interested in criminal justice reform? And why bail reform specifically? What will cost savings look like in Ohio? And does this even make fiscal sense? Like other large and complicated institutions, people find themselves working within broken systems, broken culture, and profit incentives. We brought in our policy counsel, Claire Chevrier, to walk through the role of every individual within the system. Hi, Claire. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? Good. So, sheriffs and police— What role do they play in the bail process? The police have an incredible amount of discretion. In order to arrest somebody, a police officer needs probable cause. So that means that they have to be able to point to an objective circumstance that indicates that the person they're arresting has done the crime for which they're arresting them. They can't rely on a hunch. It has to be something that they can point to. But then ultimately, the judge will have the ability to determine whether or not that probable cause existed. So what that means in the moment is a police officer can make a quick judgment. Does probable cause exist? Do they think this is the person who committed the crime? And are they going to choose, yes, to arrest someone? Are they going to choose to cite and release them so they just get a court date and can come in but don't have to go to jail first? Or are they going to take them in? So walk me through it. Someone does get an arrest and then they get booked. It's possible that somebody will go straight to jail and have the opportunity to post a bond based on a bond schedule. So bond schedules are often in place if the court isn't in session, for example. If somebody gets arrested on a Friday night and the court's not going to open again until, let's say, Monday. In many places in Ohio and across the country, bond schedules exist so that if somebody has X charge, they're going to have X bond amount. And then they can pay that amount and get out. Or if they can't pay their amount, they'll stay in jail. And with bond schedules, there's no determination about can they pay this amount? Is this amount going to be too much so they're going to end up being detained for an entire weekend while somebody else who can pay the amount is able to go home to their families? So 
once someone goes in front of the judge, is it the prosecutor who determines what their bill is? Is it the charging decision? Can you just walk me through what a prosecutor does and what their role is in the bill process? Sure. So the prosecutor chooses what the charges are. So for example, there's many different circumstances that could potentially be charged in different ways. So oftentimes you hear the phrase stacked charges. So somebody might get charged with murder, felonious assault, carrying a gun without a license, every different possible charge based on what the actions are. Or sometimes you see that they're only charged with a handful or one or two of the different charges. That choice is made by the prosecutor. So they have that discretion. Yes. And they're defending the state. Yes. So when you hear people say, my name is X on behalf of the state of Ohio, they're the prosecutor. So a judge or a magistrate, they oversee the legal proceedings. Where do they fit in? So are they the ones who determine this is the right bail for someone in this moment? What role do they play? So often during an initial first appearance, a judge or magistrate can set the bond amount, change the bond amount. Often, depending on the judge, they may just stick to whatever the bond schedule is and And then the defendant would have the opportunity to either pay the bond amount or try to secure a bail agent to pay for part of the bond. Or if they don't have the kind of money that's required by the cash bail amount, they will likely stay in jail. So walk me through the role of the bail bondsman. I know they don't have a formal place within the court proceedings, but they're the ones who end up securing the predominant number of releases. Can you talk me through that? Let's say the judge sets a bond amount for $10,000 and you don't have $10,000. So many feel forced to either have the option of staying in jail or contact a bail bond agency. They'll come, they'll usually interview you, see if you're a good candidate who they want to work with. They're going to charge you a bunch of fees, fees that you won't get back. And then they'll put up the money to court, whether that's the full amount or 10%. But then you're kind of on the hook both with court and the bail bond agency. So let's say you don't successfully appear at your next hearing. Maybe you really tried to, maybe you couldn't get child coverage, maybe you couldn't get there because your car broke down, whatever the reason is, well, now you probably have a bench warrant out for your arrest because you failed to appear at a court hearing, but also the bail bond agencies are gonna come after you. Try to get their money back because it's possible the judge, based on that one failed appearance, will forfeit the amount of money. But the bail bond agent might also show up at your home or your place of work and try to convince you either to get back to the court if they think that that will allow you to get the money back, or they might be showing up to haunt you to try to get their money back. You're then going to find yourself at the mercy of the criminal justice system and the bail bond agents. So talk to me a little bit about the opposition from the bail bond industry and what will they be losing if Ohio adopts bail reform? Sure. So if Bond amounts aren't set as high because judges have to take into consideration whether or not somebody is able to pay a bond amount, then people will less likely seek a bail bond agency to put up that money for them. Although it does make sense that some people might choose to still seek the help of a bail bond agency, pay them a fee so that they set up the money so that they don't have to be out that money while their case processes. What we're trying to avoid are people given the option of stay in jail, or pay tons of fees to a bail bond agency that you will not get back so that the bail bond agency can put up the money so that you can be free. So the police, obviously responsible for arrests 
and they present the case to a prosecutor. Prosecutors decide whether to prosecute an individual and what charges to bring. The charging decision affects everything from the amount of bail, the plea deal offered, and the length and type of the ultimate sentence. So you're saying the judges, who do have some discretion in this area, are the ones who determine the bail. Is that correct? Yes. Right now, under the Ohio Constitution and the Ohio Revised Code, a judge can set many different conditions of release for a defendant. And it could include a $1,000 bond. It could include a $100,000 bond. Bail reform would look to limit what kind of bonds a judge could set for certain individuals. So in a perfect world, walk me through bail reform. Bail reform would really seek to limit what a prosecutor could ask for and what a judge would be able to set as a condition of bail. Cash bail does not help public safety. Cash bail just means that wealthy people who can pay for their freedom go home and people who can't afford their bail amounts stay in jail. What bail reform seeks to achieve is that there wouldn't be that two-tiered justice system But instead, bail amounts would only be set if there was clear and convincing evidence that somebody was likely to run away from justice. They were going to refuse to come to their next hearing. So maybe setting a bond amount would work as an incentive to have them come back because they don't want to lose that money, but not as a way to hold them in jail. That's one way that setting bonds could help, but it should never be used as a way to keep people in jail just because they can't afford their freedom. This week's episode is sponsored by the Juvenile Justice Coalition. JJC is a statewide advocacy organization that works with Ohio youth who are at risk of involvement in the juvenile court system. For more information, check out jjcohio.org. All right, back to the episode. Welcome back, folks. You just heard about the individual players in our interview with Melecta and Claire. So now let's take a step back and talk about the machine-like players the biggest of which is the commercial bail bond business. While they do help some people get out of jail, it's also led to some ruthless business practices. The commercial bail bond industry posts 14 billion in cash bonds each year, and nearly 25,000 bail bond agents nationwide are underwritten by 10 giant insurance companies. Bail insurance is part of vast global companies, and for more than 20 years, these big insurance companies responsible for underwriting bail bonds have cultivated a relationship with the American Legislative Exchange Council, a pro-privatization lobby group that writes custom legislation, then passes them to state legislatures nationwide. For-profit bail has used ALEC to promote and pass model bills to insulate and expand surety or cash bonds. Malekta, what companies specifically are responsible for underwriting bail bonds that have cultivated this relationship with ALEC? Like we mentioned in the last episode, Tokyo Marine, Japan's largest property and casualty insurer, which purchased a wholesale bail agency in 2006, or Fairfax Financial, a Toronto-based bail insurer. But remember, there are also privately held domestic bail insurers, like the Florida-based Banker Surety, Allegheny Casualty Company, and the American Surety Company. So bringing it back to the everyday Ohioan who may use a bondsman to get out of jail, these bail contracts contain exploitive terms, and they often force people to forfeit their rights. Terms could include inflated rates, hidden fees, and intrusive surveillance like searches without a warrant, vehicle tracking, digital surveillance, and sweeping access to personal information 
for both the released person and their friends or family who co-sign. And corporate insurance companies are largely responsible for the way cash bail operates today. And of course, they're the largest commercial beneficiaries of it. And this corrupt industry donates to electoral races. They fund municipalities and work with legislatures to expand the use of surety or cash bonds. Could you briefly talk about the Ohio Bail Association and their response to statewide reform efforts? It should come as no surprise that the Ohio Bail Agents Association fiercely opposed the first bail reform legislation, HB 439 in 2018, and proposed changes to Criminal Rule 46, which establishes procedures for setting bail. So given their opposition to local reform efforts and the sheer scale and political prowess of the commercial bond industry, plus their connections to ALEC, what accounts for the growing conservative interest in bail reform right now? Let's find out. We sat down with Daniel Dew, legal fellow at the Buckeye Institute, a conservative think tank here in Ohio. Daniel, hi, how are you? Doing well, thanks for having me. And so I want to introduce you to our listeners. Uh, Tell us what the Buckeye Institute does, uh, the role of the Buckeye Institute in criminal justice reform here in Ohio specifically, and and your role there as a legal fellow. Sure. So the Buckeye Institute, we're a free market, um, limited government think tank. Our role is to, to educate on free market principles. We do a lot with tax and regulation, occupational licensing, and criminal justice reform. And we've been involved for a while now. We did mens rea reform in 2014 to make sure that people are only going to prison if they're intentionally trying to harm someone. So we're trying to take those people who accidentally break the law, making sure that they're not punished for innocent mistakes. We've done civil asset forfeiture reform in Ohio, making sure that the government can't just take somebody's property merely because they're accused of a crime. We want the government to have to go through the process. We've worked on drug sentencing reform, and now bail reform is a huge issue for us, as it is for a lot of people in Ohio. So, you know, during the war on drugs and the decades after, we saw an explosion in the number of people that are held in state and federal prisons. Underlying those policies was this idea that hyper-incarceration was justified in the name of safe communities and safe neighborhoods. So I wanted to ask you about the conservative angle. What accounts for that shift? So I think that there's been a little bit of an inconsistency. So we believe in limited government when it comes to taxes, regulations, and other things. So we should obviously care about limited government when the government can use violence against its citizens, when it can lock people up, when it can arrest people. And so I think that that's part of it. There's obviously a cost savings to it. We spend a ton of money on our criminal justice system. Just in Ohio, we're spending close to $2 billion a year just on our prison system. That doesn't include the cost of police, courts, and other features in our criminal justice system. And so I think that those two things have really helped get conservatives talking about criminal justice reform and also just the barriers to prosperity. We have people who who make um, some mistakes early in their lives, and then we hold them against it for the rest of their lives. They have a conviction on their record, and which makes it hard for them to get employment, hard for them to find housing, education, things that will really better themselves and better Ohio. So we think that criminal justice reform is a win for everybody. I, I totally agree, especially with the collateral sanctions, the collateral consequences, uh, the impediments to human flourishing. That's something that drives me towards this work. Something that I'm hearing you say, you bring up this value of accountable government and transparent government, and I want to go back to this. When I say something like pretrial liberty, what does that mean to you? So I think that that should be the default. 
And right now we rely, not just in Ohio, but across the country too much on cash bail. And what we're seeing is people's liberty is at stake based on how much they can afford rather than the threat they pose to the community or whether they're going to flee justice. And the Supreme Court has been very clear that those are the two reasons that you can detain somebody pretrial, if they're going to be dangerous or if they're going to flee justice, not just because they can't afford some arbitrary amount of money. And so I think that we have it really backwards the way that we're making these pretrial release decisions. So I want to go back to this idea of of civil liberties and bail as a violation of civil liberties. Can you speak more upon that from the perspective of a conservative, from the perspective of the Buckeye Institute, how pretrial liberty is being denied to folks, and what rights precisely are being violated? Sure. So the presumption of innocence. Somebody is presumed innocent until until they've been convicted by, by a court. And all too often, we're holding people accountable or we want to hold people accountable for a crime that they haven't been committed for. The Cleveland.com did a great series called Justice for All where they looked at people being held in jail for long periods of time over really small things, drunken jaywalking, disorderly conduct, those types of things. And if you read the comments section, which I know you're not normally supposed to do, it was people just saying over and over again, well, they shouldn't have broken the law if they didn't want to be put in jail. But we can't hold people accountable for those things that they haven't been convicted of yet. We can't try to deter them from doing something that they haven't been convicted of yet. And so one of the things that we've done is we've tried to look at it not only from that end, but from the opposite approach, where we have lots of examples in Ohio, unfortunately, where you have people who really did pose a serious public threat. And because they had access to lots of cash, were able to bail out and unfortunately do things like murder their victims, burn down homes with their victims and and other family members inside. And so really we're trying to, to show this that not only is it a justice issue, but it's also a public safety issue. If we're making these decisions solely based on cash, then it not only hurts people who do little things with little or no access to money, but it really hurts the victims of people who are victims of heinous crimes where their perpetrator really has a lot of money. So, you know, there's comments on Cleveland.com of people saying, well, this person can be released and recommit a new crime. How do you respond to folks who feel as if bail reform and having people released on this value of pretrial liberty is going to be a threat to public safety? I would say that bail reform is actually better for public safety than what we have now. Of course, anybody could go and commit a crime at, at any point, right, regardless of whether they've been arrested previously or not, the point of making these pretrial decisions is, does this person pose a serious enough threat that we are willing to do away with their pretrial liberty? Whereas now, if it's based entirely on cash and we're holding people for $200, $500, that's really not doing anything for public safety. And in fact, even if they could theoretically afford it, that doesn't make them any more or less safe. The amount of money a person deposits with a court or with a bail bondsman does not increase their public safety in the community. It just means that somebody else was transferred their funds for either a short period of time or if it's to a bail bondsman permanently, regardless of the outcome of their trial. Incorrectly conflating that risk. Right. I'm so 
Let's talk through the reform specifically. What type of procedural safeguards are we calling for when we say we want good bail reform in the state of Ohio? What do those procedural safeguards entail? So I think that the first thing we need to do is we need to make sure that we are never using cash for public safety risk. If you're going to use cash, then it should only be if you think that it's going to encourage the person to come back to court, which the data shows that that's not really cash doesn't really do that very well. Reminding somebody is the best way to get them to show back up for court. But it should never, ever be used for public safety. Because like I said, there's no amount of money somebody can deposit with another person that makes them more or less safe in the community. So what we should be doing is, is we should be only focusing on what can we do? What is the least restrictive means by which we can release somebody safely into the community? And most of the time, that's just going to be letting them go and telling them to come back and reminding them to come back on the date of their court appearance. And what do those conditions look like? There's a whole range of things that we can do. And and I hesitate to talk about some of them too much because, like I said, that should be the exception, not the rule. But it could be anything from checking in regularly with the court all the way to electronic monitoring, which should be very rarely used and should never be at the expense of the person being released. I think that those are two things that we really need to focus on as we're doing bail reform, making sure that we're not just placing another financial burden on those people who are being released. And like we talked about, they enjoy the presumption of innocence. So those conditions being individually determined, having almost an individual assessment if this person requires uh, conditions like a drug test or uh, conditions you know, as minuscule as just checking in with a counselor every week or so. Yeah, it should be an individual assessment. It should be based on what can we do to protect this person's presumption of innocence, protect this person's liberty, and ensure the safety of the community. And if it's, you know, as simple as having them call in with the court every now and then, great, that's exactly what we should do. But we shouldn't make it any more heavy-handed than we have to. Well, thank you so much. This was so illuminating on my end, and we appreciate your support and your continued analysis. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Daniel and the Buckeye Institute. I want us to remember, it's easy to call out the bad apples or lift up undeniably cruel and unforgiving people as the underlying reasons behind an unjust system. It's time for players in the bail system to look in the mirror and truly assess what contributes to an unjust system. Every decision can make a difference. And remember, you vote for judges, you vote for prosecutors and other elected officials responsible for changing the system for the better. So make sure that you vote and vote with these reform principles in mind. Wait for next week's episode as we delve deep into Ohio's mass incarceration crisis. This podcast is a project of the ACLU of Ohio. Don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe. Again, we're your co-hosts, Malik Tamalaku and Selena Cumming. And this podcast would not be made possible without our village of amazing colleagues, Claire Chevrier, James Kazmatka, and Jeff Miller. Music and editing by Dan Rogan. Mix and mastering by Sean Rule Hoffman. Don't forget to follow us on social media. You can catch us on Twitter at ACLU Ohio and on Facebook and Instagram at ACLUOH. Check out our bill website at ohbillreform.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>